Well, as um, summer approaches, um, it's a time to get excited and look forward to life sort of coming down a little bit, perhaps. Perhaps some of you, summer's a very busy time, but generally things get a little easier, a little uh, easier going over the summer months. And of course, as we get closer, we're only a couple of weeks out now to July 4th, which is a great celebration. It's a, uh, a difficult time of year for me, as I contemplate the, the failures of my great, once great nation. But for many people, there's another reason that they're going to be excited for July 4th, and it's because July 4th is the season premiere of season three of a, sh- a very popular show called Stranger Things. And so for a lot of people who like this show, it's like, yay, another reason to be excited about July 4th. And Stranger Things, is, it's a very interesting show. Um, but one of, the, uh, one of the premises in the show is, this, is there's this kind of there's two worlds. There is uh, the, the normal world that we live in, which is kind of a sort of a, a brighter, uh, more friendly and loving world. And then there's a, there's a, a world called the Upside Down the upside down world and this is actually a, it's a very dark world it's kind of like a reflection of our world but it's sort of dark and there are evil uh, entities and things like that around and so essentially there's, there's two realms going on and one of the aspects that I'm going to highlight today is the fact that um, we actually l- sort of live in two realms what I might call the realm of Adam and the realm of Christ and I'll sort of expound on that as we get into uh, the message today. Um, it's interesting, though, that shows like Stranger Things, they, uh, they reflect some truths without realizing. And often it's interesting that popular culture often reflects biblical truths without even meaning to. Uh, and I, I believe that this is because the truth of who God is and the truth of the gospel is actually it's deposited deep down in each and every one of us. And it, ultimately, you cannot suppress it, but often it, it is disguised. Uh, by popular culture who tries to, to hide that. But it's there in us, and it comes out all in our stories, in our, in our films, in our uh, books. You know, it's very, very interesting. As we look at this passage today, um, it is so theologically rich, isn't it? I mean, that whole passage there, it's almost a head spinner. As I was preparing for it this week, um, I realized that there are many angles that you could take this piece of Scripture from. Um, but what we're going to do today because we are having a baptism, is I want to approach this piece of scripture from the place of baptism. Okay, so I want us to talk a little bit about what is baptism, why is it important in the Christian life, and we're going to look at how that applies to us. So, before we actually get into into Romans 6 there, I just want to ask the question, well, why be baptized? You know, some of you might be asking that question, why be baptized? And I believe there are at least three good reasons. There's surely more than three reasons, but here are, here are three to get us started. So firstly, Jesus was baptized. And so he set an example for us. And frankly, I always think, you know, if it's good enough for Jesus, then it's good enough for us, right? So that's the first reason. Jesus was baptized himself. Secondly, Jesus commanded us to. Okay, his... his uh, the Great Commission, which was really his last set of instructions in a, in, a, in a way to the disciples, was that he commanded them. He said, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So if he was expecting his disciples to baptize others, it sort of goes without saying that 
we would also expect that they would be baptized themselves. And then thirdly, the, the, the other reason is that uh, baptism was something that the church practiced from the very beginning, from day one. You remember last week, for those of you who were here, it was Pentecost Sunday. And we celebrated the Holy Spirit coming upon and filling the church. The entire church of the world at that point was 120 people gathered in one room. And the Holy Spirit came and filled them. And what did they do? They went out. And what did Peter do? He preached to all the people around. And and listen to what it says in Acts chapter 2. It says, Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ. And then he goes on and it says in verse 41, and those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number. So day one of the church, 3,000 people came to faith and it would appear that they were baptized. That was day one of the church. So it's another reason why baptism is important as Christians. Jesus did it. Jesus commanded us to do it. And the church has been doing it from the very beginning. So the second question I want to ask is, well, how are we baptized? The word baptize, it comes from the Greek word baptizo. And it means essentially to immerse. Um, It can mean to dip, but there's this idea of of submerging, of going under. And in fact, um, it actually depicts quite a violent act. Uh, if we look outside of the New Testament and we look at uh, ancient literature of the same time, the same word is used to depict uh, people being drowned or uh, ships being sunk. So there's definitely this idea of, of going under the water. And, you know, we, we tend to have this idea that, uh, you know, baptism being this pleasant little uh, ceremony that we do, you know, and we, we get the person and, we, you know, we just a couple of sprinkles on their head and... And that's really not what's kind of being depicted here in Scripture. Um, We actually have many instances in the New Testament of people being baptized. But we only actually have two accounts that give us a little bit more detail about the process of baptism. And the first is the accounts of Jesus' baptism, which are found in the Gospels. And the other, the second, is the baptism of the Ethiopian eunuch, which is found in Acts chapter 8. So just listen to these brief passages. Uh, The first is from Matthew chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. It says, As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. That's the Father speaking, by the way. Father's Day. That's the kind of love the true father has for his children. Now listen to the second account. This is the Ethiopian eunuch from Acts chapter 8, verses 36 through 39. As they traveled along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, look, here is water. What can stand in the way of my being baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. When they came up out of the water... The Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away, and the eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. Do you notice something that both those passages have in common? They both mention coming up out of the water. They both mention coming up out of the water. Now, presumably to come up out of the water, you've you've gone down into the water, right? 
And they both suggest that typically baptism involved submerging the body. What I'm trying to do is just take us through a scriptural explanation of baptism, of why you're going to see a full um, immersion baptism today. So I want to take us now to the passage that we read this morning, Romans chapter 6. And I want to connect what we've just read to the, uh, what we've just talked about to that passage. Because I believe, I mentioned there was three reasons, right, good reasons to be baptized. Well, I believe there's a fourth that is highlighted in the, the scripture that we read today. And I want to start us at verse 3. Verse 3, um, Paul says, Don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? So what's Paul doing there? Paul is he's connecting baptism in some way to death, to a dying. And in fact, this, this whole chapter, uh, death is a predominant theme, along with new life, of course. But he's connecting this death we experience with Jesus' own death. And so there is something about baptism that connects us to and brings us into union with Jesus' own death. So what happens when you die? That's one of those questions we all wish we knew definitively the answer to, right? What happens when you die? Well, the simple answer is you get buried, okay? And it's a great reply, by the way. What happens when you, well, you get buried? Um, <clears throat> but when you die, you are buried. And so Paul goes on in verse 4, and he says, he says we, there, we that were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that, in other words, so that, Just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. So we're told here that baptism signifies a certain kind of death that unifies us and identifies us with Jesus' death and that as a result, just as Jesus was raised from the dead through the glorious power of God the Father, so we, by association and union, are also given new life. Just as we die with Jesus, we rise with Jesus. And we all know that to, to rise to new life, there has to be a dying. There has to be a death, doesn't there? For new life, for resurrection to happen. And so that's what Paul is saying here. That He says in verse 5, For if we have been united with him in death like this, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. Do you see that there is a bond That baptism signifies a mark of identification with Jesus. I I sometimes I kind of think of it like this. You know, there are there are many people who like to get tattoos, right? And they often they will get a tattoo that says something about them or who they are. You know, unless you you know you see these little you know Tweety Bird tattoos and what have you, but. But, but people tend to want their tattoo to say something about them. It's, you know, it's obviously, it's, it's permanent on your body, right? And so, and often what people of faith will get tattoos that perhaps um, say something about their faith. It might be a cross or it might be a, a, a Bible passage or a verse that is important to them. And often they do this because they, they're trying to identify and show other people that they are one of Jesus's. Well, sometimes I think that Baptism, it's almost, it's like a tattoo for your soul. You know what I mean? It's, you're basically, what you're doing is it's an outward symbol of an inner reality that you are one of his, that you belong to Jesus and to the kingdom of God. 
And so when you do this, you're making a public declaration of that. I can never say that word. That you are one of Jesus's. So Paul goes on in verses 6 and 7, and he, t- he takes it further. He, ta- he goes deeper into this idea of baptism being a symbol of a type of death. And he says, For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. There's a lot going on in those verses. We could actually spend an entire summer trying to unpack those verses. But the first question I want to ask is, well, who's the old self? It's a funny expression, isn't it? The old self. The King James Bible translates it, the old man. The old self. Sometimes we hear Paul talk about the sin nature versus freedom in the spirit. But what is the old self? Well, you know, sometimes when you're doing some research on a, an author that you like, and you might decide you want to check out some of their books, and you, perhaps you go to the library or Barnes & Nobles, or you look online on Amazon, and if, especially if they're a prolific author, sometimes you might come across what they call the, the collected works of William Shakespeare in two volumes, or the collected works of Charles Dickens in two volumes. You ever seen those kind of things? You know, you get this, this volume set of the author. Well, similarly, each and every one of us has a biography being written about your life. And every day, there is a new page or a, a chapter in your biography, day in, day out, our life story that unfolds every second, every hour, every day that we live. And so in a essence, we have the collected works of Melanie Stewart. We have the the collected works of Liz Finnegan. We have the collected works of Nick Lee. We're all a collection of works in a sense. And if you are a believer, in other words, if you are someone who believes in us and has put their faith in Jesus Christ, then your biography automatically will have two volumes to it will automatically have two volumes to it. Volume one is your life, or what I would like to call your collected works in Adam. It's your pre-conversion life, your life before you came to Christ, where you lived under that curse of sin, which of course brings death, that was brought into the world by Adam's disobedience to God. That's why I call it our life in Adam, because it was through Adam, the first human to sin, of course, along with Eve, I'm all about equal pay and equal rights for women. So I've got to keep Eve in there. But it was under them that the rest of humanity fell under the curse of sin and death. It was through them that sin entered the world. And so when we enter the world, we're under the same, the same curse that they brought into the world as the, the first human beings, as, the, as the, uh, the covenant makers with God that they broke. That's volume one. Volume two is your collected works in Christ. And this is your post-conversion life that has been released, the life where you have been set free from the curse of sin and death. So you see how we're a two-volume work when you believe and trust in Jesus. And this is what I was trying to allude to earlier with the Stranger Things analogy, right? There are two realms. 
that we live in. And the first realm you could call the upside down. And we step into the realm of life and freedom when we come to faith in Jesus. You know, that idea of freedom that we so cherish is in direct contrast to the idea of slavery or being held captive, right? Freedom is the opposite of slavery. And so, listen again to what Paul says. He says, For we know that our old self, that's volume one, was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with. And that that Greek word there for done away with, it means defeated. It means disabled. It means deprived. So, in a sense, I think of it like a Bluetooth switch. You know, you have a Bluetooth switch on your phone. And you can turn it on or off, right, depending on whether you want to be connected to a Bluetooth device or not. So in a sense, what has happened is when we come to faith in Jesus, that Bluetooth has been disabled so that we now have a choice of which realm we want to live in, that we are free. Now, it doesn't mean that we're not going to still sin because we do still have the option to turn the Bluetooth device on. But now we have the option to turn it off. Whereas if you're not in Christ, you don't have the ability to turn it off. But you see there how sin is depicted as a slave master? It talks about being a slave to sin. Sin is depicted as a slave master, that without Jesus, we are slaves too. You you are essentially in captivity to a cruel and life-destroying master. And sin, sin is a slave master that demands payment. And the only payment that sin will accept is death. And that's where we have to be so, so thankful for what Jesus did. Because Jesus made the payment that bought us our freedom. So that now sin and death, they have no hold or mastery over us. Do you know that? That you are actually free in Jesus right now. Because of what he did, not because of what you did. But Jesus now, he's saying, he's saying, you are no longer the property and under the ownership of sin. You are mine and you are free. So by being baptized, we are declaring that we have died with Christ. And listen in verse 8 and 9, it says, now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. So Jesus' resurrection meant he was done with death. He would never die a second time. Death had no grip on him anymore. And you know, sometimes perhaps we think of somebody like Lazarus, right? And we think, well, Lazarus was raised from the dead. He was, but guess what? Here's the difference. Lazarus, sometime later in his life, still died. So in a sense, Lazarus, a better word might be like he was more revivified than resurrected. Because when Jesus was resurrected, that was it. There was no more death because he'd conquered it. And therefore, death could have no claim on him. Could not have any claim on. And we live in that truth and that freedom as well. Verse 10. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Once for all. There it is, folks. Once for all, 
he died for us. And Jesus' singular death on the cross defeated sin and death for all. Now, I want to be careful here because it's easy to interpret that passage as some form of universalism. Saying that, well, okay, Jesus died for everybody, then that's taken care of everybody. Well, not quite, because to experience that freedom, we have to embrace and partake in that victory by being buried with Jesus and coming to new life that can only be found in him. You know, sometimes people ask the question, well, why can it only be found in him? Why only in Jesus? And the simple answer is because no one else has ever had the power to overcome sin and death. No one else has been able to avoid sin or defeat death except Jesus. Nobody. You know, I recently watched uh, Infinity Wars, you know, the Avengers movies, and all the superheroes in that, and the supervillains. You've got Thanos and all the Avengers. You know what? They don't have anything on Jesus. They're super wimps compared to Jesus. Sometimes we don't realize that. That is popular culture, like I was mentioning earlier. That is their attempt to come up with what they think would be a hero. There's only one true hero. It's Jesus. Finally, in verse 11, it says, In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ. Do you feel dead to sin? Do you feel like you're free from sin? It's okay, you can be honest. I don't. Why is that? Because I know that every day I still sin. I still do things that I know are wrong in God's eyes, are contrary to, to who he is. It's not like all of a sudden we don't sin anymore. But the difference is now we have the ability to turn off that Bluetooth switch because the Holy Spirit has enabled us. We're not helpless and unable to resist anymore. We have the resurrection power of God at work in our lives. You know, here's the difference, folks. While, yes, we do still go on sinning, and even though we have been set free from sin, we tend to still sin. Here's the difference, though. When an, when an unbeliever, i.e. someone who's still in bondage and slavery to sin, when they sin, it's actually a natural consequence of the fact that they are still a slave to sin. So they are just being true to their nature. It's what you naturally do. I mean, do you scold a cat when it kills a mouse? You say, bad cat, that was cruel to the mouse. No, of course you don't. Why? Because a cat's being a cat. It's what their nature does. And on the flip side, when as a believer we sin, it's no longer our nature. It's not a natural thing for us to do. It's why we feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit when we know we do something that offends God. It's not a natural thing for us to do. It's actually, it's out of character for us. And so in that way, it is not something that defines us anymore. Can I tell that to you? You are not defined by sin anymore, folks. That is not who you are. What defines us is our freedom in Jesus Christ, our freedom from sin and death. So, <clears throat> the last point I want to make about baptism is that I believe from a scriptural point of view, baptism is for believers. And what I mean by that is, it's important to make clear that the act and the, the ritual of baptism 
does not save you. So by being baptized, this, it does not buy you your salvation. Scripture is quite clear, isn't it, in Ephesians uh, chapter 2, 8 and 9. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It's a gift of God. Not by works, not by your works, so that no one can boast. So this isn't, we can't brag about earning our own salvation. All the glory goes to God. So baptism, it's not like, okay, I'm doing this because this is the step I need to make. And I get out of that baptismal font or tub or whatever it is and, whew, I just achieved my salvation. No. Baptism has in of itself no saving power. That happens through our faith in Jesus. And that is the biblical pattern. If we look at all the instances of people being baptized in the New Testament, this is always the, pa- the pattern. Believe, then be baptized. It's never be baptized and then believe. And when you think about it, that wouldn't make sense, would it? It wouldn't make sense to be baptized before you believe and make a public symbolic statement about something you have not professed faith in. Why would you do that? So when you understand that faith in Jesus always comes before being baptized, it doesn't really make sense to baptize infants. Because an infant cannot make that decision. They cannot declare their belief in Jesus. We have baby dedications because we dedicate them to the Lord. But baptism should be something that we make a decision of on our own. You know, many of you know I was raised in the Roman Catholic Church. And so I was baptized as a baby. Um, I bet my mom told me that I was actually halfway through. I was baptized. Uh, the priest went into Gaelic. He was an Irish priest. And so I was actually baptized Donal Patrick which is a Gaelic for Daniel Patrick. But there came a point in my life, as I, I, as I got deeper in my faith, that I decided I wanted to be baptized as an adult, as a declaration of my faith. Now, I'm not saying you have to do that if you were baptized as an infant. I don't think it's a requirement. But for me, that was a personal decision to make a public statement of my own volition, of who I was in Jesus. So as we conclude... When we decide to be baptized, we are taking a symbolic act and making a public statement that we are united with Christ in his death and in his resurrection. That we are no longer under the power of sin and death, but instead can walk in freedom and new life. And when we plunge into the water, we symbolize and enact the death that baptism represents. And when we pause underwater... We symbolize and enact the burial of baptism. And when we emerge from the water, we symbolize and enact the new life and new creation that we have become in Jesus Christ. Welcome to volume two of your life. All right, so we are bringing the kids back in because I think it's important that the kids see this. This is powerful. And it is important that we as a congregation see this and affirm this.